0: First Chronicles, and we will be in chapter sixteen this morning. You'll find that on page three hundred and forty-seven in the pew Bible in front of you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we love for you just to take that Bible in front of you as our gift to you this morning. Three hundred forty-seven, First Chronicles sixteen. Ben, thank you very much for your, um, I think, uh, very powerful update. And um, and, and Ben uh, was annoying us all by speaking Spanish the whole uh, week, uh, the whole time, and. Uh, showing off and, and we didn't even know if he was talking correctly because we couldn't understood him I understand him but it was great having him there and the rest of the team and it's certainly a great encouragement to see God's hand uh, working in a very difficult place and uh, we'll consider that this morning that God longs for the nations he summons the nations to worship him as we see in this beautiful psalm sung by David at the uh, bringing up of the ark into Jerusalem the ark had been disregarded at this uh, time for a great period of time. And, and finally, the ark was being brought to Jerusalem, which is the occasion for the singing that we consider this morning in First Chronicles 16. It was a representation not just of a box being put in a place, but as a representation that God is now at the center of his people. And that, uh, that truth demanded worship. As we see here in First Chronicles 16, we'll begin in verse... 23. Hear now the word of God. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be held in awe above all gods, For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O clans of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due his name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Let the heavens be glad. And let the earth rejoice. And let them say among the nations, The Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Our Father, we're thankful for you and Christ today, and we declare as your people redeemed by your son through his sacrifice that you are good. That your steadfast love is showered upon us today and shall forevermore. You are our creator and king, our redeemer and Lord. And we long to praise you and follow you and obey you and love you. And we long for the nations to join us. Help us be a people who long for the nations. For you are God. Summon the nations to you through Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, last week I received an email from a missionary serving in the Middle East among the Yazidi people who reside, uh, perhaps you know, in Iraq. And the missionaries are serving in a very difficult place. And one of the missionaries was actually able to distribute a Bible to a Yazidi individual who works in the medical staff there. And the missionary wrote, today one of the medical staff loudly and openly thanked her for the little Gideon New Testament he had requested. And so there is a Yazidi now. We don't know of any believers amongst the Yazidi. I don't know if you remember them. Those are the people that were up on the mountain fleeing from ISIS. And America was dropping food to them for a while. They were in the news about six months ago. Now there is a Yazidi who has scripture and is searching God's word. And this Yazidi man, like many other Yazidis, has his mother and his stepmother and his sisters enslaved by ISIS. And some of those women who have been enslaved by ISIS are now being ransomed back to their families. And the reason that ISIS is ransoming them back to their families is because they no longer have a need for these women because they're now pregnant. And so ISIS is, is, is giving them back for a fee because they no longer have use for them. And this missionary is trying to serve in this area, and he writes, I keep thinking of Matthew 1-3, which shows Jesus was descended from the incestuous union of the patriarch Judah and his daughter-in-law Tamar. God, our Father, can bring good out of evil, he says. Please pray for these women that they would know there's a God who cares for them and can bring healing from this terrible trauma. We need to pray for the nations in fact, we should be in prayer for our brother and sister. I'm not going to mention their name um, for security concerns, but uh, they have been with us a number of times over the last year, and we have entered into a partnership with them, and, and they are going to this very area. In fact, they landed in this area uh, just today. They left on Friday. Them and their two little children are now going to live for their days as God directs them ministering amongst these people of course, that's not the only place that Hamilton Baptist Church is trying to establish the kingdom of God. We've heard of our trip in Tijuana. Another team in April is going to Ghana. Uh, a Sunday school class this Thursday night is going to uh, feed the poor through the Tree of Life ministry. Our Eagle Butte mission team is meeting this month. On Tuesday, a team is going down to Richmond to receive missions training on how to reach sub-Sahara Africa. We're happy today to have friends with us here, uh, this morning. I'm not going to mention their names as well, because I'm not sure of the security concerns, but they are ministering to the Lord in Eastern Africa. Will you guys just wave uh, so that everybody can see you there? They're staying at the Tree of House, ha- Tree of, uh, the House of Blessing, and they're here worshiping, uh, with us today. In a couple of weeks, our brother Sam or Abraham will be here addressing the congregation, updating us on his work to reach Arabs and Muslims for Christ here in northern Virginia. And it was just a little while ago that we gathered together on a an evening and we discussed what can we do with our extra money that we have. As you know, Hamilton Baptist Church doesn't save its money, and if you give us extra money, we use it for the nations. And we decided how are we going to reach Loudoun County with this money and our nation with this money, and how are we going to reach the world with this money. You see, we, we do this because the Bible tells us, as we see in verse 24, to declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous work among the peoples. This is what we are to do. Now, my concern for us as a church, as we have this, I don't know if it's a renewed focus, but certainly it's a focus on the nations and a focus on the missions, is that many of you will conclude that, wow, Hamilton Baptist Church sure has a heart for the world. And they sure have this growing missions program. And you will conclude that, that missions is kind of one of the things that Hamilton Baptist Church does. And we have women's ministry and men's ministry and community group and children's worship. And we have missions. And there are those kind of faithful, You who are involved in missions and the really weird ones they go overseas right and I was with them in Tijuana they are weird but um, it was this is what we think we got this missions over here and then we have the rest of our church life over here and then I got my life over here and we conclude that missions is a kind of a section of what a church does and I would like to suggest to you this morning that that's not a biblical understanding of missions that missions Rightfully understood, biblically understood, is all of the Christian life. It's everything we do. Jesus Christ in the Gospel of John said, As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. The Latin word for sent is missio, where we get the English word missions. Everything we do as a Christian should be in the context of missions, in the context of our setness. Every aspect of our lives is to be understood in the context of fulfilling the mission of God here upon this earth. And I think we've missed this today. I think the American church especially is missing this. And I think one of the reasons why is that we perhaps read the Bible um, sometimes not in a healthy way. And what I mean by that is there are really two ways to read the Bible. There's one way you could read the Bible as a topical book that gives us principles on how to live. And we come to Scripture and we ask questions of it. And we say, okay, how should I treat my wife? Or how should I pay taxes? Or what does the Bible say about the Holy Spirit? Or or what does the Bible say about uh, biblical sexuality? And we, we come to the Bible as a reference book on how to live. And we go there and find wonderful things as to how I'm to be a father or how I'm to avoid temptation. And, and when we read the narrative stories, we see these as great moral examples or moral failures in which we are to emulate or to avoid. Now, this is a legitimate way to read Scripture. We are instructed to read the Bible this way. 1 Corinthians 10, if you want to explore that, will teach us that we can come to the Bible looking for these examples, and these principles on how to live. But here's the danger that if we only read the Scripture in such a way in which I'm considering how it applies to how I'm supposed to live, and then what the danger is that the Word now centers on me. It becomes about what I'm doing and what I'm supposed to do and what I'm not supposed to do. And I would suggest to you that there is another way, an- a- another proper way to read the Bible. And it is not to come to it as a topical book that gives me principles on how I ought to live, but we read it as a unified book that tells a story Of God's mission creation fall redemption consummation I believe the Bible is a narrative if you will I believe that there is a single storyline with a plot line and it is that God intends to save the world from sin And I believe we can read the Bible that way as well, and we ought to more than we typically do. Let me tell you, let me give you an example of how, how reading the Bible different ways can, you can apply to a text. Next week, if God is willing, we're going to resume our study of the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to consider Luke chapter 4, which is the temptation of Jesus. Now, if I'm going to read the Bible in a topical way looking for principles to live, I'm going to read that story thinking, okay, I want to know about the devil and how the devil tempts and his schemes. And I want to become aware of of the things he does and how he tries to get us. And then I'm going to look at Jesus. And Jesus is going to give me hints on how to overcome temptation and and how I should, should, should be able to avoid the devil. And I find all these great principles on how to live in the context of temptation. And, and that—that's many people read that story that way, and that's a proper way to read the story. But if we come to that story and read, understand the Bible as a unified book that has a uh, tells the story of God's mission, we ask totally different questions. We begin to ask, well, "Why is Jesus being tempted, anyways? I mean, what's what's the point? I mean, what, why not live just a normal life? Why does he have to spend forty days in temptation, and why does it come right after his baptism and, and precede his?" public ministry? And, and, and what's at stake here? What if he fails? What does this actually tell us about Jesus and who he is and what he's trying to accomplish? In other words, we, we want to know how Luke 4 fits into the story. And the reason this is important, I think, is because we begin to take the focus off ourselves and onto what God is doing and how we can join him. I think the typical Christian, if you were to ask the typical Christian, tell me the essence of Christianity. And we would say something like, well, the essence of Christianity is God loves me and God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for me that I might have eternal life. And and that, that is, of course, true. And we rejoice that it's true, but it's not the complete answer. Because if if all the answer is that Jesus Christ died for you, period, end of story, then Christianity actually becomes about you. And soon everything now begins to revolve around you. And and your health is about you. And your job's about you. And your family's about you. And even the church becomes about you. And and your relationship with God gets boiled down to, okay, God is just supposed to help me. He saved me now. And now He's supposed to follow me around in life and bless me. And, and we say, bless me, God, and bless me, God. And, and everything becomes about me. But if the Bible actually teaches that, that that God blesses us, that God works in our life in order that you and I might be equipped to do the work in which He's called us to do, to do the mission. For instance, in Psalm 67, the Bible says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face shine upon us. Right? So bless us, God, He prays. But why? That you may be known on the earth, your saving power among all nations. You see, biblical Christianity is not simply God died for me period or God blesses me or God loves me or God has a plan for me biblical christianity is God died for me and blesses me and loves me so that I can join him on the mission to create a people who love and follow and obey Jesus Christ amongst my neighbors and the nations what we have done is we have disconnected the blessings of God from the mission of God the bible does not do this the Bible always brings the blessing of God connected to the mission of God. You you, know, you read anywhere you want. You you look at Abraham, which, as Steve reminded us this morning, God shows up and says, I want to be in a covenant with you. I want you to be mine. And Abraham says, okay. And, and then God says, okay, we're going. We're leaving now. He says, where to? I'll and God says, I'll tell you when you get there. And off he goes on to God to do God's work. You look at Moses. He encounters God in the burning bush. And first encounter with the Lord. And there he, he, he meets with him. And God says, okay, now I want you to go to the most powerful man in the world. And tell him he needs to give up his free labor force or else. Or you, you look at Isaiah who encounters God in the temple right? And God is there in his holiness and Isaiah is overcome with his sinfulness. And he says, cries out about his uncleanness. I'm undone. He says, and God carterizes the sin out of him. God says, whom shall I send? Who shall go for me? And Isaiah says, here I am. Send me, right? He encounters God and God then sends him out. You look at the disciples on the boat and Jesus is there and all the fish are coming in. And Peter looks up in Jesus and realizes uh, who this is in his boat. And he falls to his knees and says, depart from me, Lord. I'm unworthy to be around you. And Jesus says, Peter, I'm not leaving you. In fact, you're going to come with me. And you know what's going to happen Peter I'm going to make you a fisher of men or you look at Saul who's persecuting the church on his way to Damascus to find Christians and to kill Christians and God shows up to him and he says Saul Saul why are you persecuting me and Saul says who are you Lord he says I am Jesus Christ whom you are persecuting me and you know immediately Saul is then sent out into the mission of God he would declare in Romans 5 and verse 1 through Jesus I receive grace to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among among all the nations so God never draws you in without sending you out God never blesses you without making you a blessing to others And this is what our Lord has shown. He walked upon this earth. He said, I'm the king. I'm the one that the prophets have foretold. I have brought the kingdom. I am on God's mission to uh, overcome sin and to restore creation. And I will do it not through politics or power, but I will do it through sacrifice. And when you become a Christian, you join him on that mission. This is what it means to be a Christian. Being Christian is not simply how you escape this world. It's how you bring about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has come into this world. We are to pray, let your kingdom come upon this world. And therefore, mission is not a department or a program. It's not something you do in your spare time. It's not something you put on your schedule. It's all of life. And, and when I say mission, please don't hear evangelism. I'm not talking, it certainly includes evangelism. Please don't hear going to Tijuana. Though it includes that. It is a, a life in which we live and speak and pray that others might know Jesus, that non-believers would know Jesus, and, and believers would know Jesus even better, and follow Him more faithfully and fall in love with Him. And so whoever you are, whether you're a business worker, or you're a, a stay-at-home mom, or you're a preacher, or you're a, a student, you are to do what Jesus did upon this earth. He showed us what we're supposed to do and live like Jesus. Which means you turn to others and you put yourself second, right? And you, you make yourself vulnerable and you care for others and you help people and you love them and you sacrifice to them and you listen to them. And, and, and sometimes they'll take advantage of that, just like they did with Jesus. Right? So sometimes they'll abuse that privilege. And, you talk about Christ and you go to work on Monday and they say, hey, what did you do this weekend? And I say, well, my preacher, he preached on this first Chronicles chapter 16, told us about the nations are to sing to God and to long to God. And, and you talk about Christ and then you will be shunned and mocked and, and ridiculed just like Jesus. As you follow Him on the way of the cross. If anyone is to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And you walk in the pattern of Jesus on the mission of Jesus. And your freedom and your happiness and your career becomes second and Christ's mission becomes first. Your mission is His mission. And through you, God brings the kingdom upon this earth. People begin to see and believe, and you show them how to follow Jesus, and you open the word with them, and you pray with them, and you, as he's told us, make disciples. You see, God's heart is for, the, for, for this world. His heart is for this nation. And, and this is not another topic we add. It is God's mission. And I want you to see that in this text. I want you to understand the mission of God here in First Chronicles. Of course, we could have gone to scores of different places, but there's a beautiful psalm by David here. We see three times David invites us to see who God truly is and then respond to him properly. And Consider, first of all, that David declares that the nations are to, be, are to sing to their Creator. I'd like you to note verse 25, which declares, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And he is to be held in awe above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. And so David begins to declare the greatness of God. Great is the Lord, he says. and In fact, he elaborates on God's greatness by comparing God to the gods of the people. David declares that their gods are idols. They're imposters. They're fakes. In fact, the very fact that they have to make them shows that they're nothing. Of course, we in the West don't construct little idols, do we? And we don't have shrines in our living rooms that we bow down to. But we have idols nevertheless. They are in our hearts. Everyone lives for something. Everyone worships. You can't live your life. It's impossible to live your life without investing something or someone with ultimate meaning. Whether that's your career or your family or your beauty or your intelligence or your sports team or God Himself, you will make something the purpose of your life. Whatever that is, that is your God and you worship it. You may not call it that, but that's what it is. Martin Luther declared, whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. We all have our gods. And, and people's gods may be impressive, but when you compare them to God, they are nothing. You know, verse 26, he says, For all the gods of the people are idols. What's the next word? But the Lord made the heavens. All right? You see the difference? All gods are statues. God made everything. He spoke and it came into being. All things. Everything that ever existed, seen or unseen, forever, is here because He has declared it to be, including you and I. He is the Creator. There He is, verse 27, Splendor and majesty are before Him, strength and joy are in His place. We are to see God as Creator, and then we are to respond to Him. So if God is this great Creator, how do we respond? Well, look at verse 23. Sing to the Lord. He says, All the earth. There is a worship that we are to give to Him. We see, see, God's revelation always leads to God's worship. We see who God is. We respond by praising Him, by, by rejoicing in Him. He is not simply after our understanding of His greatness or an acknowledgement that He is Creator. We are to worship Him. Verse 25 says, For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be held in awe. The greatness of God moves us to sing to Him, to worship Him. There is a doxological response to the revelation of God. But there is a second response, and it is a missional response. We not only sing to God and praise God, but we proclaim God as we read on in verse 23. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations. His marvelous works amongst the people. We are to tell of Him. We are to declare Him. There is this connection between worshiping God, sing to the Lord, and immediately tell of this God. You see, the revelation of God leads to the worship of God, but the worship of God leads to the witness of God. We do this all the time. You rejoice in something, you will tell people about it. You are not to sing to God out of duty, and you are not to witness out of guilt. You are to proclaim God because you are in love with Him. Because His deeds, as the psalmist says, are marvelous. Not ordinary or boring. They've captured your heart. And you will announce Him. You will proclaim Him. You will declare Him. You see that verse verse eight? This is how he starts the psalm. Oh give thanks to the Lord, call his name, make known his deeds among the people, right? Proclaim him, sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of his wondrous works, right? You see this weaving in and out of witness and worship and proclamation and praise. It's everywhere. They go hand in hand. My prayer for us is that we, we would more clearly see the beauty and the majesty and the splendor of the Lord, that the idols in our hearts would fade away into nothingness and we would be fully captured by the majesty of our God whom we love. That we would see that our God is greater than all other greatnesses. Everything else is an idol. We are to tell, declare. But you notice who we are to tell. Verse 24, tell his glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. We, we are to declare it to the nations. We're to declare it to all the peoples. Sing to their Lord all the earth. Right? See, it's a, it's, We're called to bring them into a place where they worship Him and delight in Him. This is what you and I are made for. To praise and to proclaim God, whatever we do. We're saved for this. We're sent on this. We are made for this to, to bring Him praise. This is what will satisfy your hearts. In fact, I appreciate J. Campbell White, who was one of the leaders in the layman's missionary movements in the 1900s. It was a revival in which these businessmen turned away from from the idols of career and wealth and and, and success and began to long after the Lord and His greatness. And J. Campbell White writes about that movement saying, "...most men are not satisfied with the permanent output of their lives. Nothing can wholly satisfy the life of of Christ within His followers except the adoption of Christ's purpose towards the world He came to redeem. Fame, pleasure, and riches are but husks and ashes." in contrast with the boundless and abiding joy of working with God for the fulfillment of His eternal plans. The men who are putting everything into Christ's undertaking are getting out of it life's sweetest and most priceless rewards. May we turn more faithfully from the husks and ashes in our life. That we might worship this God and proclaim who he is. He summons the nations to uh, praise this king, this creator. But secondly, we see the nations are summoned to worship this king. God is not only described in what he has done creating, but he is described in what he is doing. Notice verse 31, let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice and let the nation, let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. And so God not only made everything, He is actually reigning over everything. We know that this Lord is Christ. And we, have, we understand that He sits upon the throne, for His Father has placed Him there. Sit at my right hand, He said, until I make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. That Christ came into this world to gather for Himself a people of His own possession, calling them to repent and to believe in order to enter His kingdom. And then He dies upon the cross in order to ransom us from our sin, making us making a way for us to have Him as this King. And so the Lord is a King. He's in charge of everything. He's in charge of your life. He's in charge of the weather outside, He's reigning over all that He has made and shall forevermore. And we begin to understand God as a King. We respond to that truth once again by praising Him for it. I mean, this Psalm is full of it. You see, in verse twenty-eight, ascribe to the Lord, O clans of the people, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord glory. Do His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Tremble before Him, all the earth. Yes, the world is established and it shall never be moved. Or to credit Him glory and strength and worship Him in splendor. But do you notice who's supposed to worship? Who's supposed to exalt this God? Well, verse 28 says the clans of the people. Who's supposed to tremble before Him? Verse 30 says all the earth. This is a summons for the nations to ascribe Him glory. It's a summons for the nations to sing His praise. Once again, He's not simply interested in you acknowledging these truths about Him or the nations even. He wants us to praise Him for it. In fact, Paul would write in Romans 15 and verse 9, Christ came into the world so that the Gentiles will glorify God for His mercy." This is the mission of God, that you would receive the mercy of God, that the nations, the Gentiles, would receive the mercy of God in order that we might glorify Him for it, be won by Him and find delight in Him. And so we are to praise Him, all the nations. You notice how we are to proclaim Him. Once again, we see a, a worship response and a missional response. Note verse 31. He says, and let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. We are to tell the nations of His reign. We are to bid them to come to submit to King Jesus that our God would become their king in order that they too might ascribe Him glory and strength and splendor. And so we see this repeated refrain, let the nations come. Let the nations come. And of course, it's not simply here in 1 Chronicles. It is everywhere throughout Scripture. And so I think the question that, that this raises is why the nations? I mean, what... Why? Why all the clans of the people? Why, no, why? Why does? Why does he say all the peoples, all the earth? Why does why Abraham told through you, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth? Why, why does? Jesus said of the temple, this house will be a house of prayer for all the nations. Why does Jesus send us and says, you go to all nations? Why does the Holy Spirit empower us to go to the ends of the earth? Why does Paul say, I must preach Christ to where he has not been named? Why does Christ tell us that the gospel must be preached to all the nations and then the end will come? Why not just one nation? Why not just Israel or America? That's a good nation. You can pick that one. Right? Why not one? Or two? Or five? In fact, why are we even going to Tijuana? Ghana? South Dakota? I mean, is there not lostness here in Loudoun County? Is, are there not people who need to know Christ is King, creator, uh, living next to your house and working in the cubicle next door? I mean, why in the world would you, would you go to Tijuana when you could just go across the street? or cross the hallway. W- why the nations? Well, you read the psalm and you see what the nations are supposed to do. They're, they're supposed to unite their heart and voice in worship of God. They're to sing to Him and ascribe Him glory and worship Him in splendor. So the, if God's goal is for Him to be exalted Him to be glorified, uh, my question is what's going to exalt God more? If just one type of people worship Him and love Him and are drawn to Him? Or if all kinds of people in great and vast diversity and different languages and different customs and different dreams about life, and yet they all are united in finding their delight in Him? Take for instance, let's say uh, there was a work of art, maybe a a piece of music or something. and, and, and there was one group, very like-minded, small group, but they really loved that piece of art. And so that, has, so that art has some glory. But what if there's a piece of art that not just one group liked, but, but, but everyone liked like Everyone in America really liked it. Like what, what so like, let me put it this way. Sometimes there are some people in church that like hymns right, to organ and piano. And there are some people who like new songs to guitar and drums well, what if there was a type of music that we all agreed is the best and not just us but people throughout this country like Californians and Virginians and, 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 and even Mexicans and and people in the Bedini uh, Kurds and the Lakota Indians and the Ghana and, and they all agreed in fact everyone in this whole world agreed that that's the best and not just in this world, but, but people who, who have gone and, and are dead. People 100 years ago thought it was the best. And a 1,000 years ago, they thought it was the best. You see, the more diverse the people who give their heart to something, the more glorious that thing is seen to be. The greatness of an object increases in the proportion to the diversity of those who recognize its greatness. Let me give you another example. Let's say, let's say there was a leader. Right, There's leaders all over the place. People want you to follow them. And usually they get people very like them who will follow them. But what if there was a leader, or maybe let's say a king, who not only got Republicans to follow him, but Democrats as well. And even the Green Party, right? Yeah, and the Libertarians, right? And in fact, not only Americans to follow him, but he got Europeans to follow him. And and Africans want to follow him, and Asians want to follow him, and and South Americans want to follow him. In fact, not, not only people living on this earth want to follow him, but, but people throughout all time have wanted to follow him. We would say, that that leader is truly great. Right? In fact, what if, what if this leader can take people who are supposed to hate each other? Imagine this. What, what if they were in a clan and they grew up and for centuries this clan hated this clan? We hate those people and these people hated these people. And they didn't want anything to do with them. They wouldn't even let each other in the house, call each other's name, the prejudice that killed each other. What if there was a leader that was so great that he could not unite people from over here and people from over here? And they would actually love each other despite everything they've been taught because they love him. Well, then his glory is clearly seen, is it not? That will draw the world to himself. That will exalt him. Christ is demonstrating his greatness by winning the affection from peoples all around the world. As one has said, there is something about God that is so universally praiseworthy and so profoundly beautiful and so comprehensively worthy and so deeply satisfying that God will find passionate admirers in every diverse people group in the world. His true greatness will be manifest in the breadth and diversity of those who perceive and cherish His beauty. I could testify to this truth personally. I flew out to Tijuana a week ago Thursday. And as Ben told you, we had a worship service on Thursday night. The worship service uh, is not like this service. It, it was in a, um, a plywood building with a tin roof. And we didn't have cushion pews or air conditioning. Well, we didn't need air conditioning, praise the Lord. But we, we had, we had metal, metal folding chairs. And there was uh, the, the mission team there. And then there were the two missionaries, Dave and Debbie. And there were about six women. And there was uh, a bunch of children. And, and not, not, wasn't, we were packing the place out. And, and the music that we sang, we sang to YouTube videos. That was, to my ear, very, very loud and occasionally accompanied by a poorly played drum. And there were nasty cats coming in and out of the place and children were were squirming and and I was tired. It started at 7.30, we're now at 9.30. By the way, that's 12.30 my time. And I just got off a plane here this morning and and the the word that was given was was nice but nothing too compelling or inspiring or insightful as the word w- was shared and by the way i can only understand about every fourth word maybe every or a tenth word and we would say well that, that's not conducive for a vibrant worship That's not conducive to draw one's heart after God. And I'll tell you, in the midst of all of that, my heart was racing to the glory of God. And I wanted to shout, great are you, Lord! I wanted to worship Him. There was something working in my life. As I'll tell you, the greatness of God is displayed more clearly when He calls people unlike you and unlike me. People from around this world, from every nation and every people group to bow their knee to Him. It's not a matter of the the talent of the musicians. It's not a matter of, of the condition of the room. It is a matter of what God is doing to redeem a people. And He gets glory when He goes into every nation and says, you are mine and you are mine and you are mine. And people bow their knee to King Jesus. This is why He wants the nations. He wants the nations that He might be glorified in them. And I'll tell you, that has a massive impact upon us. When we see the nations come, it not only impacts us, it impacts the world. The world will sit up and take notice. What in the world is going on? Why are the nations coming to this God? They won't take notice if it's just people like you and I. When people start coming to Him, it just snowballs. Well, lastly and quickly, we need to understand that the earth is summoned to exult in the judge. Note verse 32. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. We've seen that God has created the world, that God rules over the world, and that God will judge the world. He's coming to judge. And the earth is summoned to exult in its judge. You see joyful praise all over there. The fields to exult and the trees are to sing for joy. Verse 34, I'll give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Creation's praising him. We are praising him. We are worshiping him as judge with joy. Now this is interesting because usually we don't connect judgment and joy. Right, those two don't go together in our mind and yet the trees shall sing for joy and the field shall exult because he's coming in judgment. So how, why do you connect joy with judgment? Well, when Christ comes in judgment, he's going to right all the wrongs. It's the only hope we have for this world. That no, justi- no injustices will go unaddressed. Everything's going to be per- right. The world's going to be renewed. This is why it's good news. This is why we rejoice in it. I don't know if you noticed, but but the earth is not really filled with joy and happiness right now. I don't. Have you noticed? You go to Tijuana and that could be very clear to you, or just turn on the news, or go to the hospital, and you will see that this world is broken. We live in a broken world because we have turned our back upon its Maker, and the center can't hold us together anymore. Now anarchy is all over this world through our sin, and God is coming back to put all things right. He's going to put them in order. He's going to deal with evil and sin once for all, and the world will be renewed. In fact. You notice there in verse 34, then the trees of the forest, um, then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy. This is future tense, right? One day the trees, he says, will sing on that day. In fact, that reminds me when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry and remember he's riding on the back of that donkey and everybody's coming out and laying their coats before him and they're shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Hosanna to the King of Israel, right? And there, the Pharisees are over there with their arms crossed and their faces frowned and they call out to him and they say, Rabbi! Rebuke your disciples. And Jesus says, if they were to remain quiet, even the rocks would cry out. Right? Jesus is so glorious that if it were not for His restraining hand, creation would be in praise of His majesty and His righteousness. And and we see here the rocks cry out and trees sing for joy. Of course, that's a metaphor, right? Probably. But what if it's not? Right? I mean, maybe this is just a tantalizing reminder that our world is just a shadow of what it one day will be when King Jesus returns and puts everything right. And if the trees can sing and the fields can exult and the rocks can cry out, what will you and I be able to do? He's coming. And this is why it's joyful. God is going to come and bring everything right. It is the only hope that we have for the world. But now here's the question. If the judgment of God is the only hope we have for the world, does it bring hope for you and me? Because if we order to enjoy the world that He is going to renew, we have to endure that judgment. And how are we going to endure the judgment of God when I can't even live up to my own standard, and neither can you, right? We all have standards in this room, and none of us are living up to our own standards. What about God's? How will I stand in judgment? In fact, when we think about this, if there is no judgment, then there's no hope for the world. But if there is a judgment, what hope is there for you and me? Well, I'll tell you the hope. It's found here in verse 23. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of His salvation from day to day. He is a saving God. He has come to save And there's nothing more glorious and beautiful, even greater than His creation and His reign and even His judgment. The greatness of God is precisely seen in in the mercy of God through the sacrifice of His Son. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ walked upon this world, lived a perfect life. A life that you should have lived and have not. And He died a death that you should have died and won't have to if you trust in Christ. In fact, there already was a judgment day, wasn't there? It's called Calvary. It's Good Friday. Judgment of all my sins and all your sin, Christian, was poured out on King Jesus. We were judged then in Christ. He was judged for us. And if you understand this, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, understand that there is a King in this world. He is coming again and He has made a way for you to know Him as King. In fact, He today demands that you would come to Him. He has made you. And He demands your allegiance that you would come to Him and bow your knee to Him and swear your life to Him. Trust in Him for what He has done. And when you do, He will rule on your behalf and shower you with love and grace for all of your days. You can do that today. The Bible says if you confess Jesus is your Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And we see that His Son died for us. But His Son not only died, He rose. He returned to heaven, and one day he will return for his inheritance. The Bible tells us in Psalm 2, the Father says to the Son, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possessions. When he comes, the clouds will be his chariot, the wind will be his, his wings, the host of heaven will be his army. He declared in Matthew 24, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect. Jesus is coming back for the nations who are redeemed people of every tongue and tribe and, and nation. He's coming back for Americans and Mexicans and Ethiopians and Bedini and Ghana and, and Lakota. He's coming back for them all. And when He comes back to get us and when He comes back to judge this world and when He comes back to renew this world and He invites us to sit down as His brothers, as children of God in that great feast and this cosmic reconciliation, the Bible says we shall sing. We shall praise Him. In fact, you know the name of the song? It's called the Revelation 15, the Song of the Lamb. There is no greater song than a song sung of Christ, the Lamb of God. The Bible tells us we will declare great and amazing are Your deeds, O Lord, uh, the God, the Almighty. Just and true are Your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify Your name? For You alone are worthy and all the nations will come and worship You. And so Hamilton Baptist Church, let us see God truly. And let us respond to Him properly. Let us find our joy and delight in Him in praising Him and proclaiming Him to our neighbors and indeed to the nations. Father in Heaven, we thank You. That Christ has come for us and all people. All the peoples of this world, none shall be excluded. There shall be some from every nation, tongue, and tribe. For Christ is worthy. Help us to invite them, beckon them in, to give their hearts to you in worship. Perhaps there's one here today that would be willing to give their heart to you. Perhaps for the first time ever. That they would bow their knee to a king who will save them and set them on mission for the glory of God, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.